Welcome to Management Matters, a National Academy of Public Administration podcast where policy meets practice. I'm Terry Gurton, President of the Academy. On this episode, I'll discuss connecting individuals to meaningful work during the reopening after COVID-19 with my guest, Lisa Danzig. Lisa is a fellow of the Academy and specialist leader for human capital, organizational talent, and transformation at Deloitte Consulting. So hi, Lisa. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So um, jumping right into this idea of meaningful work, one of the Academy's 12 grand challenges in public administration is connecting individuals to meaningful work. As you look toward the future, what will meaningful work mean? So I think the COVID-19 situation has certainly been an accelerator in considering what work and meaningful work really means. Um, There have been a number of um, new technologies and changing workforce demographics that have shaped shaped this idea up until now, but now obviously that has been accelerated dramatically almost overnight as people have moved into this virtual work model. Um, So I think when you think about meaningful work, you can think about it in a lot of different respects. I think when you think, you can think about the little the little parts of work, whether that's, you know, are, do, are we going to wear suits and ties to work still? Uh, will the same kind of cultural assumptions and rules apply now that we've all been interacting in this more informal context and a much more integrated context with our personal lives? Um, you can think about the kind of medium-sized things like, will people still be tolerant of commuting in the ways that we have historically now that we've had this extended period of time? where we haven't spent a lot of time in the car, where we've had more time with our families. Um, and I think people will be asking them themselves those questions. And then kind of bigger things in terms of how we actually work together. Um, are we really going to have big meetings that require a lot of people to come together? Are we going to reimagine some of the ways that um, work gets done to uh, account for, I think, what we've learned during this virtual uh, working time? I was going to say just a few years ago, you know, people thought the gig economy was the future of work. And yet in the world of social distancing, you know, much of that kind of work has disappeared. Yet we're seeing a whole new focus on people who really do need to be hands on and in person. So how does that change how we think about what work really needs to get done and how it gets done? Yeah, I think that's exactly the question everyone is asking now, Um, kind of the two dimensions that we've been thinking about it in terms of the the one you just raised around what is really a fixed work location. And you think of, you know, a doctor conducting surgery or a manufacturing plant obviously needs to happen in those fixed work locations. And then there's a kind of dynamic work location. So my job, for example, as a consultant, you know, I can make my PowerPoint slides and talk to anyone from anywhere. Um, and so thinking about kind of those two dimensions and what needs to happen at an individual level and what is interdependent in terms of people actually needing to collaborate. And I think in the former on the fixed work um, dimension, that is a little more straightforward. But I think in the in the latter around the dynamic work location, I think thinking about um, that that's where we're being stretched in our thinking where previously, you know, whether it was conferences that needed to happen, whether it was um, you know, a whole range of work topics uh, that the historical precedent was that everybody you needed to be, you know, co-located or um, at least face-to-face. And now just by virtue of this extending for months at a time, 
we actually are proving to ourselves the, the capabilities we have in working more remotely. And I think, you know, some of that will drift back into the other column of fixed work. And there's certainly a psychological benefit from that um, in-person interaction. And we're kind of building off that foundation from the work we're doing now. We obviously have had a whole many years of history of working in a co-located way. You know, it's not like this is a pure experiment and what that would be. Um, but I think we will be reevaluating that many things that did fit in that fixed work column would shift to that dynamic work because we've proven that out through this experience. Do you think there's a, a call right now to really develop maybe even a national workforce development strategy that looks at the skills that um, are being exposed as we go through this pandemic and think about how we promote those, whether it's particular technical skills or uh, in-person activities or um, just sort of any kind of re- uh, workforce development um, situation? How do we prepare people for this new future of work? Yeah, it's a great question and one we're really in the midst of in terms of a lot of the clients that I'm working with. Um, I think there uh, is definitely the need for those resources and kind of strategic focus that you're describing. Um, a couple of t- specific topics come to mind around, um, you know, how to, how to think about automation, um, how to understand t- the use of these technologies, how to lead in a virtual environment and, um, you know, create an empathic kind of connected uh, experience that isn't just transactional. Um, And I think the context for all of that are really important as we think about, you know, what the type of work is that's done or the culture of an organization or the, even kind of the leaders and what they're comfortable with. So I, I can imagine a lot of different permutations of how people access the resources and tools to um, develop that skill base and kind of support their workforce in developing kind of, you know, what you could call digital fluency or um, kind of more uh, sophisticated ways of um, virtual work. Well, speaking of those kinds of challenges, I mean, um, as a country, we're kind of looking at the potential of perhaps a 20% or higher unemployment rate or since the Great Depression. So how are you advising businesses in this environment? What do, what do they need to think about in terms of a shift in their work arrangement and preparation for the future? Yeah, I mean, we, I think, all know that this disruption is, um, you know, that necessity is the mother of innovation and invention. Um, so mostly I'm working in the government practice um, and some in the commercial, but um, mostly thinking about how this has impacted government. Um, and really talking about how to shift um, and create kind of the muscles of being more agile as a result. So, um, you know, I think up until now, uh, it was fairly well understood that there are a lot of different forces in the private sector, whether it's competitive market forces or um, new entrants, um, just, you know, our bottom line kind of um, responsibility that is creating those muscles for agility and creating that demand to constantly be innovating or renewing. Whereas in government, um, that competitive market clearly where many, most places doesn't exist. Um, and the, you know, most places are really just operating and providing a, a mission that other places are not. Um, so I think, it, you know, that holds true in this context of unemployment as well, that um, as the economy shifts and government revenue declines, um, you know, the demand on government services increases, 
Um, you know, I think government workforces stretched more. A lot of the work we've been doing with government agencies is how to manage then all those different components and really how to develop those muscles of agility. Um, and I think that comes across in a lot of different respects, whether that's agility and leadership approach, um, because you can't have as hierarchical uh, structure or culture um, that might have historically been the case, um, because you need to uh, create more agile processes or systems. Um, I think that that's true in terms of you know technology, as we've talked about, um, and how to help uh, how how the government organizations can shift their uh, whether it's their business model or just their operations to basically operate in that new, you know, what I think many people are calling this new normal. So specific to this unemployment issue, I think it affects state government very directly. And in recent reading recent articles about significant budget shortfalls um, as a result of having a lower tax base. And um, I think then that's forcing the organization into how do we do our work more efficiently? How do we automate in places that um, we have repetitive tasks or we can save money because we don't need the same number of, uh, of, of workers. How do we respond from a government, you know, standpoint with these reduced budgets, but with, um, you know, these kind of increased demands? Well, I know you used to be the associate director for personnel and performance management at the federal office of management and budget. And so what you're talking about here in terms of what the federal government has done to adapt to the requirement of telework seems pretty amazing. And, maybe actually kind of unimaginable just a few years ago. Um, but what does the government still have to do to make this work for the long term? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I think one many people are asking. Um, I think, you know, as I said before, the challenge in this context is it's not just that we're teleworking, you know, and kind of moving in the, into this kind of future of work model. We are all, first of all, operating in this telework environment, and there's the pandemic, which is creating, you know, lack of childcare. So we're, you know, we're in some ways, there are a lot of proof points that, oh, in fact, this works, or we can uh, collaborate and operate in this more virtual environment. But in other ways, we're, this isn't a really a, the right kind of test, because the systems are way overloaded. And, you know, it's much more extensive than it, than it would be normally. Um, so when you think, when thinking about the long term, I think of how to make this work in government, we're thinking a lot about um, where are there pockets of, of places in government that we're already thinking this way, that we're already starting to move to a virtual environment and a digital um, kind of capability, um, and building on those kind of um, spots and examples to demonstrate to other places in government that are under similar constraints, and whether that's kind of civil service constraints or union constraints or some of the regulatory requirements, um, how this, what is the flavor of how this happens in government in a sustained and enduring way, not in this kind of all, everyone suddenly virtual without childcare environment, but in an ongoing way that can be sustainable. So for example, um, I've done a lot of work with uh, the Department of Agriculture within rural development, and we've been working with a single family housing program. And uh, it used to be um, that most of the operations were in 47 different field offices. And what we've done is set up a virtual team structure so that these loans are processed. It's a guaranteed loan program in a uh, virtual process where people are all over the country but report up through a consistent standardized structure. Um, and we've spent, uh, you know, essentially two years working with them 
to both pilot that that structure, but then also to shift that new model, and which requires kind of supervisory, you know, virtual management. It requires telework policies um, to support that. It requires you know performance management structure that overlays that, um, and kind of data metrics on the back end to to be monitoring. Um, so I think of that as an example of an enduring model that as this crisis has surfaced, has really also been very well, um, you know, prepared because all this infrastructure was in place. And, you know, there's nothing particularly fancy in terms of the technology or nothing that revolutionary, I think, in terms of what most parts of government have access to. Um, but that kind of structure of moving to determine what work really needs to be fixed per our conversation earlier what work can be done, um, especially interdependent work in a virtual environment, and then how do you kind of di- take an understanding of the demographics and the workforce circumstances to figure out what what then can move into that kind of latter category of, of operating in a dynamic workplace environment, and then setting up all the infrastructure around policies, um, you know, the kind of personnel systems, the culture and leadership structures, the supervisory capabilities. Um, and then being able to monitor that work in that environment. So wow. I, I'm very optimistic that there's there's a lot of potential here in having people who may have you know been resistant to telework prior to this and now have seen a lot of benefit and maybe the fears or or myths about reduced productivity in many places may have been disproven or um, you know that that the value of telework has been. Uh, uh, validated, I think, through um, through this experience. And I think that will translate back to um, iterations in places where that work can be um, become remote to going through that process. Well, I love that example. And it gets back to the words you were using earlier in our conversation about agility um, and flexibility and exercising our innovation muscles. But nothing you just described about the single family housing organization sounded like it was easy um, to create that new model. As um, OPM has given guidance about reopening and sort of delegated that down to local offices based on the pandemic situations where they are, what's your sense of the possibilities for innovation at, in that decentralized way? Is the government really able to kind of coherently re-engineer that kind of work on a nationwide distributed basis? Um, yeah, I, mean, I think that there, you know, I used to work at HUD as well for five years and, um, you know, often we would look to the field for sources of innovation. Um, and I think in, in many cases, the um, distributed model is what really generates that innovation that um, kind of the let a thousand flowers bloom <laughs> Uh, approach, um, obviously with some, you know, oversight and kind of consistency from a headquarters role or kind of policy standpoint. Um, but I think there's a lot of potential in uh, freeing people up beyond the boundaries of what they um, typically perceived, you know, within their location. And just personally, even as, I'm ta- as I think about my Deloitte experience, we think about staffing teams you know, up until now, most of the teams had to really be located in D.C. And, you know, we might get some people from outside the area to weigh in periodically. But now, you know, we are we have this kind of much broader workforce uh, talent pool that we can pull people in from all parts of the country. Um, and many of our staff are operating from all parts of the country just on these projects. 
So I think about that similarly in the context of, um, you know, this kind of distributed or decentralized model that um, there's just a lot of possibility in terms of innovation. And um, I think with the right kind of calibration of leadership and kind of risk mitigation, that um, it really could be the best of both worlds in terms of, um, you know, being more innovative. So one of the other challenges that you raised earlier is around the fiscal situation. and knowing how much the, the government has appropriated in emergency uh, funds to deal with this situation, and at the same time knowing that all of these um, modifications to the way we work are going to require significant investment, how do government leaders find the opportunity to make the investment that can really drive this new way of working? Yeah. So, yeah, I think that, I mean, kind of connects to your earlier point about the distribution and innovation and that um, I think my experience of government is that government tends to attack problems often by centralizing, you know, creating a task force or a committee and kind of pulling a central group of people into, um, you know, analyzing options and providing recommendations and, um, you know, implementing from that. And I think in some respects, your points about, you know, the fiscal uh, restrictions and kind of demands on the workforce suggest that kind of this extra collateral duty of being on task forces, et cetera, is a model that may not be, you know, in some cases it could work, but in other cases it would overload an organization. And that in some ways having that distributed model and a way to capture innovation, you know, more remotely. I know at HUD, for example, we had a platform we called HUD Ideas in Action where you know, we were soliciting input from staff and pulling the, those ideas in, um, you know, to a kind of central, you know, leadership decisions. But it was more of an iterative process. So I come back to the agile language um, because I think le- less of a, you know, and, you know, to use the IT terminology of the waterfall approach of, you know, evaluate, you know, recommend. It, it feels like this that could be a much more productive iterative cycle where um, solutions like automation are available, criteria is understood in terms of what is needed, and input is collected on kind of an ongoing basis. And the machinery of the organization, you know, is going to be limited by its own capacity in terms of processing that. But the more there's, it's kind of integrated into the fabric of the organization in terms of a, a continuous cycle of improvement, so to speak. Uh, I think the more likely it's less of a kind of auxiliary demand from an energy standpoint or a financial requirement. And it just becomes a part of, you know, it's 5% of everyone's job to think about how, how their jobs could be automated, or it's 5% of everyone's job to think about, you know, what are the security implications of more virtual work, as opposed to it's, you know, 20% of five people's jobs to kind of sit down and think it through. And I think with with more um, integrating this into kind of everyone's role in a day-to-day way and everyone's contributing to this, um, I think that's a way to kind of um, disperse the thinking, but also to um, get some of the best thinking about what, what could happen. So Lisa, we were talking about all the things that the federal government has got to do to equip its remote workforce. And yet we still know that there are a lot of people who work for the federal government whose work requires them to be on site. Um, So what what do government leaders need to do right now to make sure that those who have to work on site 
are adapted into the workforce at the same time as those who are remote. Yeah, I think that's a very fair point. And there's clearly a lot of work that um, needs to be on site and can't be can't happen virtually. I think there's two things I would suggest. One is to just question that assumption. Um, you know, one we've talked a little bit about. You know, do you have to be on site to cut checks? Or, um, you know, something that maybe, you you know, a long-term question is, could that become an electronic payment? Or someone that needs to be on-site at a Social Security office to handle customers. Um, I know Social Security Administration has been, you know, uh, experimenting with kiosks. So, I think the first question is, first of all, do, is there a long-term plan for maybe moving that work into a more digital or automated format that could save FTE over, the t- over time and costs? Um, and shift the nature of that work or the the role of that work. Um, The second thing I think is the importance of having a collective workforce experience and that even if a set of work uh, workers are going to be operating virtually and others um, physically present, the importance of creating um, an infrastructure and a kind of identity that's cohesive and captures the full workforce. And so a lot of what uh, we talk about at Deloitte is the workforce experience as not just something that makes people feel good, but that is a strategy overall that really supports uh, achieving the mission. And um, I think the evolution of the workforce experience has gone from something that used to be kind of something HR thinks about and thinks about in terms of, you know, and I know we, we, t- we, we talk about FEV scores and kind of are people engaged and do people feel involved? But when we're kind of, if you bring that up one level into a more mature version of a more holistic workforce strategy that thinks about, you know, as people, you know, from the cycle of their, you know, when they start a job with government all the way through to when they retire, what is that experience? And and even in a day-to-day way, um, what is that experience for people, regardless of how they fit into the organization, if they're a contractor or they're um, part-time, if they're a seasonal worker, if they're full-time, if they're virtual, if they're, you know, physically on site, how do you create a cohesive uh, culture that really integrates all of those people and thinks about their experience in a strategic way? Well, I want to circle back. We've talked a lot about um, your immediate experiences and advice for folks in the federal workforce, but, um, You've had a lot of different experiences, and one of the things that makes the National Academy of Public Administration somewhat unique among the good government groups is it has, as its fellows like you are, public leaders with experience at all different levels of government. You had local government experience in San Francisco and New York City. You've worked in community nonprofits, and you've also served in several senior positions at the federal level. So, you know, taking our conversation already, but maybe broadening a little bit, as you look at the impacts of the pandemic across the country, what really strikes you as the biggest challenges for government right now at any or at all levels? Um, Yeah, I I think this is kind of consistent with the conversation we've been having so far. In some ways, the problems for government are really the same, I think, as other industries. you know, we talked about the revenue shortfall, the economic slowdown overall, you know, overstretched healthcare sector. You know, there are a lot of commonalities, I think, between uh, government and what other industries are experiencing. But in some ways, as you noted, government is also pretty different. And in some instances, and I've been struck by this through this process, 
you know, you look at a place like oil, the oil and gas industry or, or restaurants, you know, something more personal, it's pretty clear how, you know, demand is, you know, the, the, the sector, the industry has just kind of evaporated in terms of the demand decline. Um, whereas in government, I, my, what I'm observing is um, much more pressure on government employees to do their jobs and where demand is actually increasing, whether that's for the services because we have such a high unemployment rate or in the healthcare sector or because of the CARES Act and increased funds that need to be dispersed and monitored. So in some ways, the government has taken a little, it's more similar to a the kind of essential workers experience um, in that people are really, really dependent on the government uh, in this context. So um, I think in terms of the biggest challenge, I would just come back to the kind of muscles of being agile and that um, I think at all levels, as, as the government kind of faces these similar constraints, but with this added dimension of a greater demand for services and kind of increased responsibility in dispersing funds that are coming through Congress with these additional appropriations, um, the need to quickly pivot in terms of the um, actual work that's being accomplished and make that, whether that's becoming you know, virtual or operating under you know, different physical guidelines or um, you know, just even managing the organization in this kind of new normal. Um, I think that is the core challenge where um, private sector has just developed those muscles somewhat before by virtue of the competition, et cetera. Um, so a couple of dimensions, I think, in the way that plays out. When you think about leadership in government versus kind of leadership in other industries, I think leaders um, typically can't make unilateral decisions. They have to work in partnership with legislators or other regulatory agencies. You've seen this recently in Wisconsin um, where the state legislature disagreed with the governor about the stay-at-home order. Um, so that just creates a kind of added dimension of agility when you think about um, how to actually shift course. Many of the leaders of these respective agencies are you know, tied into the bureaucracy of the organization, which really relies on all these other checks and balances, um, which complicates, I think, the decision making. Um, I think, you know, the pretty obvious uh, government constraint around the rules um, and laws and you know, administrative uh, requirements in government. Um, so even in a very small example, one of my current clients, um, you know, the, the rules require a wet signature on some documentation. So in this context, staff are coming into the office to sign these documents. Um, and that's a, something that, you know, seems like it should be rel relatively straightforward to change it to an electronic signature, especially in this context. But because of all the rules and administrative requirements, that is not so straightforward. So just another example of how the challenges of being agile and adjusting in this very disrupted environment is complicated by the kind of particular constraints and environment that the government is operating within. Um, so I think that developing these agility skills and the ways that we've talked about, about around you know, what, what things could be automated, even if it's a simple automation of, you know, moving from a wet signature to an electronic signature. Um, and how do they, how does the, how does the government build this uh, capability to change course culturally, you know, operationally um, to adjust to this new context, I think is the biggest challenge. Well, Lisa, you've given us a lot to think about today. Clearly, while people are in the midst of managing challenge, I think your message is to remind them that there's opportunity 
to make change for the future. And that in addition to trying to fit in our home workouts to keep our muscles agile, we need to work our uh, innovation and agility muscles and think about how we go forward with this. So I really appreciate you being with us today, Lisa. Um, Take care and be well. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. For our listeners, uh, check back every Monday for a new podcast from the Academy. We'll be talking to Academy fellows each week about the challenges facing public administrators at every level of government as we try to make government work and work for all. Thanks for listening.